Hello and welcome to Wisconsin Law in Action, a remotely recorded podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship with University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Emily Capodarco, the outgoing editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin International Law Journal. This is the first in what we hope is an annual tradition with the Wisconsin student editors of the journals, and I couldn't think of a better editor to begin our tradition with. Thank you for joining the podcast, Emily. Thanks. Excited to be talking to you, Chris. Uh, before we jump into your current work, let's find out a little bit more about your background, specifically your writing and research interests. Sure. So for my background, before coming to law school, I worked for a couple of different organizations, first an international development organization, and then an innovative nonprofit serving people in need here in Wisconsin. And then finally, and most recently, uh, I was a case manager in Milwaukee County Drug Treatment Court. So it was a pretty varied experience after after undergraduate. And in terms of writing and research interests, I really have a wide range of interests. And I think that's actually served really well as an editor-in-chief of Welch because it really allowed me to enjoy the wide range of topics we publish as a journal. Specifically, I'm from rural Wisconsin, so I have a strong interest in both international and domestic sustainable agriculture practices food access and the laws and regulations surrounding those issues. Um, but my duo here, I wrote my journal note about how the cannabis industry has shed some light on Native American tribal jurisdiction, specifically under Public Law 280, which is a law that is only active in several states that affects tribal, federal, and state jurisdiction. Um, but the past year or two, I've, I've definitely expanded my interest. I've been exploring a variety of topics in trucks in the state, labor and employment, and most recently bankruptcy due to a, a moot court experience that was quite fun. Um, but yeah, I'd say that, that having a wide variety of interests has definitely been interesting, but also helped me really enjoy my work at CIC. I'm going to have to talk to you later after we're done recording about the PL280 paper. I didn't realize that you had written about that. That's really interesting stuff. I actually worked with Professor Richard Monette about a paper I wrote with him. Like, that's not published or anything, but about the history of PL280 and its impact on the inter- interaction between states and tribal governments. So I really like, I'm going to have to read your cannabis article. That sounds really cool. So I'm learning well, stuff I, every time. It's a really fascinating topic to, mm-hmm. to delve into, especially because it's something I knew a ton about beforehand. Yeah, it's something that I don't think a lot of people do know about, and it's really adversely affected a lot of government relationships about the sovereign laws between state and federal and tribal uh, governments. So it's really, I want uh, cool is what I was about to say, but not cool, but fascinating is <laughs> yeah. what I will say. Yeah, but fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep with that term, exactly. Uh, so now that we got your background, can you guys give us some background on the Wisconsin International Law Journal, such as its publication history, the typical articles that you publish, and how frequently you publish? Sure. The Wisconsin International Law Journal, or WILCH, was established in 1982, and we publish between three and four issues every year. Uh, the journal offers articles of scholarly and practical interest, and we publish in a variety of areas of national international law. Um, the really interesting and fun part of being editor for Roach specifically this past year has been the truly wide variety of topics the journal publishes about. I'll, I'll speak to the journals a little bit, uh, bit to a little bit later, but for our journal, we, we truly welcome scholars to uh, submit their articles for publication that reflect any topic of international law. We accept articles through Expresso. And if a, if a scholar has a, 
it's an interesting topic that they'd like to write about or that they've done work on, uh, we'd love to read it. We, we really do a run gamut of, of topics. This, this next year, it varied widely uh, in our first and third issue, and then our, our second issue, we um, tend to publish a symposium issue, which I'll talk about in a moment as well. Mm-hmm. With such a wide variety of topics, how do you select the articles that are of interest both to general researchers and to international law experts? So we have two different methods that we've used. Um, historically, in this past year, we have worked as a team between the editor-in-chief and the senior articles editor uh, on the senior editorial board. And the three of us would look at the submissions that we've received through Espresso and great, based off of the rubric that we use internally, looking at a variety of topics, you know, is this a timely topic? Is it a regional research? Is it um, interesting? Would it go well with our journal scholarship? Um, is it written well? And is it work that we think that we could work with the author on to only, you know, make improvements during this time within our editing process? Um, it, it really is a, a kind of a gamut of factors. And in Doing that, we go back and forth, and then ultimately the, the senior editorial, uh, excuse me, the senior articles editors bring their suggestions to the senior editorial board and the EIC, and we discuss and come up with a final list before making an offer to the author, and then the author will accept or, or not. Um, this past year, we really were looking at the number of submissions that we've been receiving and um, also kind of who's involved in the decision-making process and we decided to pilot a, a more of a board form so that we could have additional voices from across the journal instead of just senior editorial board members to be able to make some of those publication decisions or to make recommendations on what they think is, is interesting or well-written so that we can kind of have a, a little bit of a wider variety of voices that are part of the decision-making process. Even though the final decision will still live with the senior articles editors and the editor-in-chief, we're really excited about um, piloting and moving forward with having a, a wider variety of voices that go into that decision-making process, and we were excited to pass that project on to the incoming senior editorial board, um, so moving forward for the journal. I love hearing this stuff because I don't really get a chance to hear about what goes on behind the curtain. I just get to see the magical end product most of the time besides helping with the sites. But this is great. That was really, really an informative answer. Thank you for that, Emily. So let's get into the meat of this and tell me about the articles that you published this last year. So as I mentioned earlier, this was a really wide uh, variety of, of articles that we published this past year um, in, in really a, one of the best ways. Um, for the first issue we published, it, what, it ranged all the way from looking at duty of elder care in Taiwan um, to due diligence as a concept within international humanitarian law, and then also an article about um, the Mississippi International Water Course and whether there's a right to innocent passage, um, looking specifically at Canada, U.S., and Mexico, of course. Um, and then we also had three student notes published in that issue as well, which dealt with um, implementation of autonomous vehicle law, which was very cutting edge and interesting to read about. The um, free speech in the internet age, which actually looked at a YouTube video that got really uh, famous about a man who had trained his girlfriend's uh, pug, his girlfriend's dog, to respond to Nazi commands and how that kind of echoed through the free speech world. And then an article about the WTO, 
and what and why and, and an argument about whether it must adopt a standard of review uh, for specifically for Article 21B of the GATT. So again, very wide uh, array of articles in that first issue. The second issue historically has been what we call our, our symposium issue. And so what we tend to do is publish articles in that issue from the previous year's symposium or conference at the journal house. So specifically, and I, I'll, I'll speak to the symposium in a second, uh, but this past year, the symposium was about where's the lawyering in China and Russia, common challenges across lawyering in those two countries. So this, these uh, articles that we published that were pushing issue two really deal with issues of modern lawyering that have come up in the, across these two countries. So uh, some articles looked at lawyers and legal advice websites, and they looked at the role of gender and career preferences for young Russian lawyers, and then there are also applications for professional ethics of lawyers in China, a look at Hong Kong and the future of Chinese law firms, um, and then professional trajectories of Russian law students who have graduated from MD-affiliated institutions, as well as a, a couple other articles. So, again, even though in that instance for that issue, we did kind of narrow the focus based off of that symposium and the authors who presented at it, you can still see that, that there are quite a, a variety of interests that are reflected in the articles that we ultimately uh, end up gathering and then publishing. And then lastly, our issue three for the past year, one thing then was um, quite broad interests. We published three professional scholars and then three student pieces as well. For the professional pieces, there was uh, one that looked at labor trafficking and forced servitude in agribusiness internationally, um, another that looked at Russian mercenaries, uh, and another that looked at the anti-defection provision contained within the Constitution of Bangladesh. Um, and then last but not least, the three student articles that were published dealt with changes in the United States' immigration policy that has occurred in the past couple of years, whether or not transgender troops can deploy, and then lessons that U.S. regulators can learn from fintech sandboxes in the United Kingdom and Australia. So, uh, once again, I, I've just been thrilled as editor-in-chief to read about and learn about so many fascinating topics that have spanned international law this past year. That is unbelievable. That is so great to hear about those numerous different topics and such a diverse lineup for your issues that you published this year. You deserve to be thrilled for that. That is really impressive. I say that a lot. I say impressive a lot when I'm hosting the podcast, but I do mean it this time, Emily, I assure you. <laughs> uh, but let's let's rewind a little bit and talk about your symposium. Uh, you talked about how it's, uh, the articles are published in issue two, but can you tell me more about the symposium itself, the topics, the speakers? Absolutely. So the, the past year, as I mentioned, our April 2019 symposium was Lawyers and Lawyering in China and Russia, um, and then during the 2018-2019 school year, the journal actually amended our bylaws to allow for other types of programming besides symposium. And we, we really like the symposium and want to continue that tradition um, because it has been such a strong tradition for the journal. But we also wanted to give our boards and our, our journal membership the opportunity to explore what other types of, of conferences might look like. So 
this past year, we were excited and proud to be planning the um, first ever Wisconsin International Law Scholars Conference. And so this was primarily through the efforts of our senior programs editor, Nina Nass. I want to make sure I give her proper credit because this was a huge undertaking to, to not only change the format that we were using, but then also to um, move forward on planning a, a, a very interesting and wide-ranging uh, topic, which was going to be about climate change and human rights um, with scholars coming from all around the world. So what we did was we solicited work ahead of time so that people could have what was essentially going to be a working papers conference. So scholars were going to be able to join together and review each other's work before coming to the conference, and then at the conference, use it, use it as an opportunity to brainstorm and then the, uh, review and critique each other's work, and then after the conference, continue to stay in touch and or complete the work to then uh, submit for publication. We were really excited about this this change um, in programming to see how it, it went and that uh, final scholarship that we were able to get from it. However, uh, as everyone is well aware, the COVID pandemic really greatly affected our ability to host this. We ended up having to cancel that, which is scheduled for the beginning of April. Um, and we are moving forward on, and we have to pack the torch for the, to the next senior editorial board, but we're happy to say that they are planning on uh, being able to at least pull this online um, or virtually uh, sometime later this year. Um, if we were able to move forward on holding it in person, that was our great hope. So we were really holding out, waiting to see what would happen, but that seeming like it would be less and less of a, of a reality. So we're moving forward with a virtual plan so that those scholars can still have that really great interaction and review each other's work. Um, so we're excited to see where it leads. Um, we're stuck that we have to um, cancel that in-person event, but we're, we're hopeful that it will still lead to some really wonderful scholarship and some great opportunities for the scholars that we invite to participate uh, in this conference. And that, that interaction that you mentioned is very important at the working paper stage for scholars to get the feedback and be able to understand how their writing is progressing, if their argument is making sense, if this is effective, it's been discussed before. This is a great chance that you, you and Nina have set up for, for scholars to get things published. I think that wonderful idea, and you've definitely planted a seed for the next board to take and run, either virtually or in person, whatever may happen for it. Any which way you slice it, it's going to be a, definitely a, an improvement uh, in addition to that, what's planned for next year? Are there any articles or notes that you are aware of or anything specific to watch for? Uh, certainly. So as you're aware, plans are always developing for the next year. And as of right now, we have to kind of wait and see how the COVID pandemic will, will affect our ability to um, make plans for next year's symposium, conference, um, the journal that I still plan on pursuing some sort of work and some sort of gathering, even if it has to be virtual, that will continue to promote international law scholarship for the, the journals and in general. Um, and when it comes to some of the notes or articles, I'm happy and proud to say that I get to pass that torch on to the next senior editorial board members. Um, the incoming editor-in-chief for, for 2020 and 2021 is Hannah Tuttle, and they, she has a senior editorial board as well that um, are just going to do great things. I, I have to say that I'm, I'm very proud. We had some shakeups during our our elections. Um, that was that was quite a trip. We had uh, uh, 
the fire department about the hospital. We had to switch buildings and we ran uh, elections semi-virtually because of the COVID pandemic. And, and it was a really interesting time. But at the end of the day, I was really proud of how the journal came together. And we had strong elections and strong candidates for this coming year's senior editorial board. And I'm really excited about um, people who will be serving the journal this next year. I truly believe that they're going to do a, a wonderful job. And I know that they are currently undergoing the selection process um, for next year's issues, at least for the first issue. Even though I don't quite have uh, insider, uh, insight into what those specific articles are going to be, I know that they are working hard on it and exchanging um, lots of conversations and emails to make sure that it is um, some fascinating legal scholarship that they can publish into the world. And I look forward to working with Hannah. I've, I worked with her a little bit on and off on other research projects, so it's great to hear that she is taking on the reins for, for Wilge's editor-in-chief position. And uh, hopefully we can rope her into doing a podcast with us next year to just have these very same questions for her to see what has transpired over the last year. Uh, hopefully you can put in a good word for us if this works out okay. <laughs> I will. <laughs> All right, good, good. All right, now for the hardest question of the podcast. Uh, what do you hope your legacy as Wilge's editor-in-chief will be? Um, I went in this past year really hoping that I could concentrate on the systems of our journal and the organization, the internal organization of our journal. And I, even though I think it will be a little bit hard to see from the outside of the journal, I really hope that my legacy will live on through the structural and organizational changes that myself and my wonderful senior editorial board that I was able to work with this past year uh, were able to implement for the journal. We really concentrated on um, the ability for each board and each round of students that comes through to pass forward information um, each year. So we really concentrated on updating all the transition models for each of the students. We concentrated on the processes by which we do things and we had a lot of great conversations about why and how uh, we as a journal make the decisions that we do and how we implement them, how we could do those things better. And, you know, there were ideas that we came up with that we quickly tossed aside because we realized why something had been done the way that it had. And then there were other ideas that came in and that we were able to draw upon. So one of those, as I mentioned earlier, was the, having a board selection uh, process for the articles. Um, Another kind of simpler one was that I felt as a tool that I, I I wish I had a more centralized communication method in terms of being aware of journal um, updates. And so we implemented a newsletter this next year uh, internally to journal membership to say, here's where we're going, here's where the assignment, what, which assignments are coming up and what you need to expect to be able to plan your time around. Because as a journal, there are lots of changes in in expectations and as you need to adapt to, um, to issues, to concerns, or work as it comes to light. And I think that our, our journal, our membership, does a really good job of, of navigating that. But I know as a law student, it always helps to have a, some sort of idea as to what your timelines time will be so that you can try to make sure you're managing your workload in ways that allow you to be most successful. So um, we really try to make sure that structurally um, that the journal was in the best place possible and that it was 
the best experience, not just for the scholars and the authors that we're working with, but also for our membership so that uh, we can walk away from our experience really feeling like we're able to contribute uh, in an interesting and helpful way to a great academic experience. If your legacy as editor-in-chief is to increase communication and improve communication and to uh, encourage better time management, then your legacy will be a, a you'll be a Mount Rushmore of editor-in-chiefs at some point if that's what happens. But that, that is wonderful to hear. Yeah. That's great. Uh, where can people find new Wilge publications? Where can they find your archives? So we would encourage interested parties to email us at at to inquire about a subscription to our journal. Uh, subscription, a subscription is the best way to support the Wisconsin International Law Journal and to get first access to our publications. However, a historic archive of our work can be found at both the WILJ website, which is uh, wilj.law.wisc.edu, and it can also be found at the Law Library Repository website, which is repository.law.wisc.edu. So those are both great resources that I would highly encourage people to check out. And of course, we'll link to both those archives, both the Wales Archives and the Law Library Archives in our post for this podcast, so we make sure people can get to those. And we'll also post a little bit of a blurb for the email to contact you for a subscription as well. Okay, thank you very much for joining me today, Emily. We've been speaking with Emily Capodarco about her time as the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin International Law Journal. We're speaking with the editors of all the Wisconsin Law Journals this month, so be sure to check out our previous podcast where I spoke with both the outgoing and incoming editors of the Wisconsin Law Review. Next up, I'll chat with the incoming editor of the Wisconsin Journal of Law, Gender, and Society. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast on either Stitcher or the iTunes Store, and you can listen to our full archive at Wisconsin Law in Action at wilawinaction.law. By whisk.edu. Thank you for listening, and until next time, happy researching.